I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is one of my dearest friends, Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth was a novelist and a journalist, still is, until she turned a few years ago her biggest failures into a movement that helps us learn about how to fail and how to turn failure into our biggest opportunity for learning and success. She started a podcast called How to Fail that became an incredible sensation and a big hit and then wrote her first nonfiction, How to Fail, which became an international bestseller. And then eventually, just a few months ago, released her second nonfiction, Failosophy, like Failosophy, clever, which I have to say is a must, must read. Of all of Elizabeth's work and analysis and studies about failure, I think there's quite a bit of irony about how successful and truly admired and loved she is. We're going to be recording this conversation on Instagram Live, which I intend to be doing quite a few of in the future. So before we start, get your Instagram out and find me on Instagram, mo underscore gaudat, so that you can be part of those conversations live in the future. I've been waiting for this one for quite a while, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. There she is. Hello! I've got ridiculous headphones. (laughs) I was just going to say, what's up with the hairdo? First of all, the mic with the thing, but also the headphones, I will have to say, they make you very, very professional as a podcaster. That's how it's supposed to be. Thank you. Elizabeth, I miss you. You're so wonderful. How are you? I miss you so much as well. I'm good. Where are you? You look like you're in a beautiful, luscious place. No, not at all. Actually, I'm in Dubai. I love Dubai. I was in Canada with my daughter until it started to snow. And then suddenly I, re- <laughs> I realized that my love for my life is a little more than my love for my daughter. Oh. And I just couldn't... St- <laughs> I just can't do the snow. I just, it's not for me. It's a... So the minute it got to that temperature, I was like, that's it. All right. I love you, but I'll text you. And then that was it. How is Aya, your lovely daughter? She's wonderful. She really is. She is, yeah, she's finishing university, which is a big shift, I think. So she's in a place where, uh, where she's planning everything and thinking about everything and looking back at her failures and her future success. How is London? Did they lock you down? How are you in London? Are you guys, everyone in London, are you okay? Is it going well? Well, I can't speak for everyone else in London on here, but yeah, we're in lockdown at the moment, but they've just announced that we'll be coming out of lockdown on the 3rd of December and we'll be going 
tiered system. So it feels like there is hope in sight with all the great vaccine news and everything. I definitely feel a lot more optimistic. I feel a lot good about everything. Yes, we need to do that. I have to tell you, I miss it tremendously. When I heard you guys were going back into lockdown, I thought if I fly very quickly and get there and be locked down there, because it was such a wonderful experience. I really, honestly, the UK and London was so kind to me. You know, I did not deserve to be hosted so kindly, but I had a home for a long time and it was a wonderful experience with loved ones and friends and it really was a big thing for me. We love you in London. This lockdown has been slightly different from the first one. It's like a semi-lockdown. <laughs> so there's still lots of traffic on, on the roads and everything. So it isn't quite that the same sense of quietness before. I heard, I heard finally, finally, people in Britain have learned to become Middle Easterns and ignore the rules. So there you go. <laughs> Welcome to my life. <laughs> We're good with that. <laughs> Elizabeth, I have been waiting for this conversation like for half of my life. We always talk the other way around. And I actually believe you have more to teach us than I have. So I'm going to go into places you've not been asked about before. So is that okay? Oh my gosh, yeah. You can hang up right now. No, I am <laughs> intimidated because you, for me, as you know, are my own guru and a man of such intense wisdom and integrity. And I quote you, all the time, almost like every single I speech I give. I know, but because I watch all of the speeches that you give. So I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> she, she said it again. <laughs> actually, that's the way I want to start the conversation. I actually don't remember how we met, but I remember vividly that the day I met you, I was like, I'll do anything for this person, like whatever she says, anything she wants. And in a very interesting way, I mean, you know those, those movies where they show you someone in the interrogation room and they're applying violence to get information out of them? I think they should replace that with an Elizabeth Day. Basically, it's like you want a criminal to commit, you show up and you go like, so um, why did you do this? And he would go like, oh, you know, I, I saw the mango, I had to take the mango and then, you know, they annoyed me. So basically, you get us to speak so openly and I don't understand why. And I asked you that question when you released philosophy. And I said, why are you so wonderful? Why? What is going on? Oh, you're so lovely. I do remember how we met. We met because your UK publisher got in touch with me and the How to Fail podcast was still in its relative infancy. And your publisher said, I think you might like this guy. And then I read your book and I was like, he is going to be amazing. And you exceeded every single expectation I had. It remains possibly the most profound conversation I've ever had, let alone on the podcast, and it's changed my life. Okay. Man. If you say that you think I'm wonderful, that for me is such a huge compliment, but is a reflection of the wonder that you find in the world. You seek that out because of everything that you have researched, the way that you choose to live your life, everything that you have been through, the grief that you live with, and the optimism and hope that you choose every single day, for me, it's a self-generating thing. So you have chosen mm. to see something beautiful and positive in me, and I'm forever grateful, and I hope I can continue to pull the wool over your eyes. That's a very, very, very clever turnaround. I definitely chose to see that in you, but I still insist. Why do we open up so much with you? I mean, it's not only me. The entire How to Fail series is full of 
incredibly like highly sought after people that you just put there and they turn into little kids and they start to talk about their failures and it's quite emotional sometimes. I suppose I listen. Mm. I was about to say that when I meet people, I think because I know what it is to feel vulnerable, I know what it is to feel like you don't fit in. I didn't have a great time at school and therefore... Did you not? No. How come? Well, I, as you can hear, I have a very English accent, but at the age of four, <laughs> my parents moved to Northern Ireland. And um, uh-huh. at a time when to speak with an English accent marked you out in certain quarters as an occupier. And wow. I went to secondary school at Belfast and it was still, you know, there were bombs going off. There were military checkpoints. And secondary school, as you know, is a tougher environment where difference isn't really tolerated I was a year young for my year so I was this like weird English kid who was a year ahead of herself and who'd grown up in the middle of the countryside I wasn't cool (laughs) and I never felt I fitted in I was treated like a bit of an outsider and that stayed with me and I think it stayed with me in two ways one is that I became very attuned to listening to what wasn't being said as well as what was being said. And Mm. I think that that made me empathetic to people's vulnerabilities. And I also think maybe it's something that you're born with, but I do believe that our vulnerabilities and our imperfections are what connect us. And perhaps people, when they speak to me, can sense that, can sense that I hope on their side. And I truly believe that overwhelmingly people are good if they have the chance to be good and the opportunities to be good. And so I suppose I approach every interview like that. So maybe that's part of Mm. it. It's a big part of it. And I think that the idea that you yourself have gone through hardship at so many levels, actually, it's really quite interesting. I think most of us somehow feel that you're not a, a fraud when you talk about life being difficult. I think that really helps us connect. Even though I have to admit, sometimes I think about you and you're spending so much of your time thinking about failure and how to fail and the seven principles of failing well. And you're such a big success. So you're a journalist, you're a book authoring machine, like you write like a machine. You're on your sixth book already and you're loved everywhere. You have that incredible podcast. So Why would you talk about failure at all? I mean, it's a very good question. And I'm hugely aware of the irony that a podcast (laughs) about failure and book... is very successful. (laughs) It's become the most successful thing I've ever done. And you are part of that. So I blame you partly. But I'm very aware of that irony. But as you say, there's professional success and there's also personal hardship and... I definitely have been through some stuff personally that I have chosen to share and speak openly about because I think those things are important. For instance, my inability thus far to have children, being divorced, various relationships that have ended, an ex-boyfriend who died. All of those things have been an integral part of my life. And although I can't go as far as to say that I'm grateful for every single one of them, I can say that 
in the midst of the grief that I might have been handling, I also chose to find some meaning in that. So while the crises might not have had meaning in and of themselves, they did teach me something in the fullness of time and I could attach meaning to it. And I think that I now realise that for me, success is not about a best-selling book or getting to fly on a private jet, never done that, but still an aspiration. <laughs> and it's not about selling out the London Palladium, as amazing as that is. For me, it's about being able to be myself, my fullest, authentic self. I love that. And in every area of my life. And that, for me, has been such a gift. And that has only mm. come out because of talking about failure, because I didn't have any space to pretend and to feel accepted finally after not being accepted at school to feel accepted by this huge community of people who were so generous to me is just really beautiful and that for me is success so if this is success what is failure i actually always wanted to ask you that how do you define failure damn it you ask the good questions that's something i avoided nailing down for ages because i wasn't sure what the answer was I sort of knew was. For me, the basic definition, failure is when something doesn't go according to plan. So then you have to question where you get the plan from. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, who's given you the plan? I mean, you talk a lot about this, Mo, about how we are all iPhones in many respects. Or I know you don't like iPhones. Other phones, we're all smartphones. <laughs> I don't dislike them. I dislike what they're doing to the world. But yes. A smartphone comes in a package and it works perfectly when you first get it. And then you upload loads of apps and then it stops functioning quite as well. And you blame the phone, whereas actually it's because you put all the apps on. So in the same way, it's like when I got divorced at the age of 36, I felt like a failure because I hadn't lived life according to the plan that I'd been socially conditioned to believe in. So that plan that I'd grown up being told that that's what was expected of me, every single romantic comedy that I watched was like the happy ending mm. when you end up with your partner. That's one form of failure. Another form of failure is an existential or cataclysmic failure, like a global pandemic. And it would be monstrous of me to claim that those failures can be easily assimilated or that they have meaning within them because they don't and they cause an enormous amount of distress and I don't know why they happen. But I do know that in the fullness of time, we will learn something from them. Yeah, but there is that little category in the middle and I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but I often hear you saying, I failed to have children. How can that count as failure? You've done everything that you can and the premise in the first place is never within your control. And I'm actually praying to God that you will have the cutest children. And I, in my heart, I feel you will. But the question is that this is, this is not within our control. Like when I lost Ali, my brain started to tell me you failed to protect him. It's a, it's a very parent thing that our role, the, the ego that we assume as parents is we need to protect our children. And, and so my brain starts to tell me you failed to protect him, but I had no ability to protect him. You know what I mean? And so where do you place that? Why would that count as failure? Yeah. Thank you for talking about Ali in this context. It's actually a very generous thing for you to do. There are various layers of answer to this question. 
One is that I think I was made to feel like a failure by various medical professionals who treat me. It's something I talk about because the language around fertility medicine is the language of failure. It is the language of your body is failing to respond to the drugs. It's the language mm. of being told that you have an inhospitable womb or an incompetent cervix, all of which is designed to make you feel less than at a time when you already feel that you're not performing your biological function as a woman. And I put that in quotation marks. Oh my God. Because that's part of our social conditioning. And it goes very, very deep. And as much as I'm a feminist, and I really, really am, and I firmly believe in feminist principles, I also have this embedded primal belief that I must have children. Or I did. So I had this belief that I must have children in order to fulfill my destiny as a woman. That has massively changed because I realise now that whether I wanted it or not, I'm part of a generation of pioneers of women who don't have children and who contribute an enormous amount in spite of and because Absolutely. of that fact. I'm extremely grateful for the women that I've met who are really amazing, strong, wise people. But I think as well, you mentioned that it was beyond my control or it is beyond my control. And to an extent, you're right. But as you know, there's so many medical lanes that I could go down. And, and part of my frustration with myself is first that I wasted time in relationships that weren't, weren't mm -hmm. having children or with men who weren't ready. Again, I put that in quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> to have children and I feel like I spent too long learning the lesson of those relationships and also that you know potentially there are loads of interventionist avenues that I could have gone down and I haven't and it's partly because they scare me it's partly because I don't want that to become the only thing in my life I'm so aware of how much love I already have in my life and I don't want to get it out of balance so there's a degree of sort of uncertainty about how much I could have done. And this is going to go very deep. How much I should have done were I truly worthy of being a mother? Now, that's my oh. inner deeply critical Becky brain thought. And that goes very deep in my psyche. And I've never said that out loud before to anyone other than my therapist. But those are the reasons I think I feel like a failure. I'll have to say that motherhood is in one form biological but in many forms i don't want you to understand that differently but you're a mother to many of us so there is the idea of motherhood in my view which i think is the biggest gift any human being can ever be given which is the ability to create life itself in an interesting way when i spread happiness i'm actually living or living my feminine side my my motherhood that's the ability to give someone life somehow through a message of happiness. You give, you're constantly spreading a message of hope. And in an interesting way, I, I also have to say, you mentioned the word, and I don't know if you meant it, that because of not having children that may have given you a little more time or a little more ability to focus on what you're doing. And maybe that's an interesting way of looking at oh, it. Oh, I agree a hundred percent. I know that the amount I've been able to put into things that I'm passionate about right now, the podcast, these conversations, 
writing books that I wouldn't have had that time to devote to it. And so I do believe, and I, I do truly believe that the universe is unfolding exactly as it's intended. I know. I wanted to talk to you about that. <laughs> and I, like you, Mo, like I just have an innate belief that I will be a mother. And sometimes in my darker moments, I think, well, that's so stupid of you. But in my positive moments, which I'm really trying to cultivate more of, I think, no, that's how you must think. You must put that energy out into totally. the universe. Yeah. Totally. And I also agree with you that I feel that I have found sort of new kind of family through what I do. And that has given me an enormous amount of reciprocal love. So I'm very grateful for that too. Mm. So one of the things that I really get quite a few questions about is the idea of, I feel guilty, I should have done something different. But then I always ask and say, given the information that you had at the time, given the person that you were at the time, would you have done anything different? I mean, in an interesting way, uh, you may have been in a relationship that had a man that wasn't ready, but, you know, being a woman, being in that relationship, seeing certain things from him may have made you think he will be ready. And so you waited. Given the same information, would you now do something different? I would now, but that's because I have evolved as a result of learning those things. So if you could transport mm. the me that I am now, horrible thought, back to that relationship, <laughs> then I probably would have acted differently. I, I would have mm. kidded myself less because I think I was still kidding myself about, about what I wanted and who I was. But I only learned all of that stuff because that relationship and all the previous ones ended. And actually, on a very mm. practical level, the last relationship I was in, the one that ended, was the one that prompted launching the podcast. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I remember you always saying to me in our first interview that incredibly profound line about how when you speak to people who have endured the unimaginable trauma of losing a loved one, a close member of their family, if you ask them, would they take it back? so many times the answer is no, because so much growth and beauty has come from the experience of that yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. Believe it or not, I mean, even then in my heart would have always said I would take Ali's loss back, but no, I wouldn't. I mean, if you look back now five years or six years later and see the impact it had on the world, I will tell you openly, if you asked Ali today, Ali, would you give your life for this? He would. You probably would. And in an interesting way, it's not just about my growth. I think one of the things I realized very heavily was that Ali was never mine. This is his path. This is his life. And just like he chose to go to Boston to study, maybe he chose to go to the next level. And I don't know how to explain that. But in an interesting way, I always think about children as a third party. So to invite a third party in your life is partially about you, the mother, but mostly about that being, about that being's willingness to come. And so in my personal view, it's their timing, not ours. And this is why I always believe that because you're on that mission and you're collecting so much positive karma, I think there are quite a few competing out there saying, I want to be her baby. It's like, I, you know, this is, <laughs> I'll, I'll go to that one. That one is good. Can I take you on another interesting, really one of the most important questions I wanted to ask you today? 
how would you tell younger women who are suffering through those mistakes that you learned from? I mean, I find you, you say you're a feminist. I find you to be an incredibly effective feminist. You're incredibly successful at what you do because of your feminine side, because of your empathy, because of your vulnerability, because of your ability to get us to open up, because of how nurturing you are. These are feminine qualities. This is very different than being the CEO who's whipping people, you know, to succeed in something, which is a masculine quality, sadly, right? And so what would you tell women if I stopped talking until the end of this conversation and had you tell women everything that you've learned? Go ahead. Please don't stop talking because I'm gaining so much from it. But what I would say is those points in your life when you feel lost and confused and misunderstood and as if you're not going anywhere and as if everyone else has it sorted and is friends with each other in a group that excludes you. Those moments, first of all, are transient and those moments will make you into the strong, empathetic and beautiful being that you will become. Those mm. are the moments where our character is forged and shown. And sometimes you have to wait for your moment in life, just like you have to wait for your best friends to come into your life. Just as you said so poignantly, you have to wait for your children to choose to be born. These are things that are worth waiting for. And as you always say, life is not a race. As Ali said, life is more like a computer game where the point is to gather up wisdom and knowledge and look at all the secret alleyways and all the interesting things that the programmers have put into each level. The point is not to get to the final level the quickest. <laughs> and if you are a young woman and you're in that phase where you feel lost or that you're not doing enough, just remember that, that for me, age has been an enormously empowering experience. And indeed, increasingly as men, we are taught that age diminishes us because our capitalist society wants us to buy stuff that will keep us youthful forever. And that's a lie. And actually, I find that I am more myself with every passing year because with every passing year, you accrue wisdom. And that's something that you cannot get unless you allow time to pass. So that's what I would say. And I would also say that it's one of my value principles. Breakups are not a tragedy, even though they feel like that at the time, because they can be so unmooring. When someone has invested so much time and potentially feminine energy into a relationship and has hoped for the person and hoped for the best and done everything they possibly could do, and still that relationship ends, it really knocks your own judgment. But I promise you that all those annoying people who say, you'll look back one day and you'll be grateful for this, turns out they're actually speaking the truth. And I am now grateful oh, for yeah. single one of those breakups. Yeah. Actually, the one thing about your story that really touches my heart most every time is how the wedding dress turned into how to fail. It's really such an interesting symbolic. So, you know, the thing that is hurting you, but you're hanging on to it, you're hanging it in there, looking at it and saying, I failed in that relationship. You take that, you put it on eBay and out of it, something comes out that is so amazing for you and for all of us. And I think that idea of letting go, of changing things is quite interesting. I'm so flattered by the amount of research <laughs> you have at your fingertips. <laughs> I'm so honoured. I've been stalking you for years, Elizabeth. So, <laughs> But 
for anyone who doesn't know the story, when it came to launching the podcast, I'm a technological incompetent, as you can tell from the fact that I was wearing headphones at the beginning of this podcast that didn't work. <laughs> and, um, and I knew I had to hire a sound engineer who would make it sound amazing. And so I Googled and found this amazing person called Chris Sharp, who still does my podcast to this day, who you met, Mo. And yes. To pay him, I eBayed my wedding dress. So as you say, it was this symbol of a failed marriage, which had been one of my greatest sources of shame in a way, my failure to stay married, no matter how much effort I put into it. And even though the ends of important relationships, such as marriages, are often played out in slow motion, when it actually comes to it, the decision and the reaction is very quick. So... I sort of yeah. walked out of my house, what was then my house, with, you know, one bag and found myself moving back in with my mother for a while. And then I had a year of living in like Airbnbs and people's homes. And then I found myself a tiny rented flat in Kentish Town, big up the North London Massive. And in this tiny <laughs> rented flat, I had my wedding dress still hanging there. And it was one of those things that was not only hanging in my wardrobe, but hanging over me. I knew I needed to sort it out. I knew I needed to do something with it. I was just in a state of stasis almost and like numbness for a long time. And then finally, the podcast gave me a reason to do it. And so I eBayed my wedding dress. A lovely woman in Sussex bought it and I packaged it up and sent it off in the post office. And I felt so good and so liberated by that. And yes, it is a lovely symbol because it's also about passing on your story and passing on totally. happiness as well. Yeah, it it's really is turning something into gold. It's turning dust into gold, really. It's in an interesting way, it's turning something that ended into something that begins. And I think that's so beautiful symbolically. And I think the whole idea is letting go because... As you rightly said, when people come to me about a breakup, you know, and it happens all the time, majority of us break up until we find the right person. It's just the process as it is. And I normally respond by saying congratulations. That means you're moving on to the next opportunity in life, to the next experience, to the next exploration, to the next phase of development. But that idea of letting go of that dust and turning it into gold is quite, quite interesting. So I, I have a very sensitive question, actually. So Justin which I believe is one of the luckiest men I know. You met him on Hinge. Is that true, Elizabeth? I did meet him on Hinge. <laughs> Are you serious? This to me is quite shocking because look at you, adorable, charming, beautiful, successful. Look at Justin, CEO, very successful, intelligent like, like they come. An incredible man in many ways. And do people like you meet on dating apps? <laughs> it was so lovely. And I love how much you and Justin love each other. I love him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I considered him at the point. No, I didn't. <laughs> okay, so how did it happen? I, it was before I launched the podcast. So in a way, it was like, it was before I'd really found myself and my sense of purpose in many respects. And I, oh my God, online dating. <laughs> So after that breakup that I mentioned, which happened three weeks before my 39th birthday in October 2017, I went through six months of data acquisition of online dating and real life setups. And I'm very grateful for that now because online dating can be so unbelievably dispiriting. And I truly understand that now. Whereas before, when I was smugly mm. coupled up, I would think, 
oh, that sounds quite fun going on the odd date with a stranger. No, 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 it's a nightmare. And I had to like sort through the week from the chat. And basically I got on Hinge out of desperation. I felt like I tried all the other apps and I was bored one Saturday and I downloaded it. And Justin was the first and the only man that I connected with and met up with. And the reason that it interests me is because his profile was terrible. He had chosen... <laughs> I couldn't imagine that. Unflagging faces of himself. Didn't appear to have like that much of a sense of humor in the answers. Described himself as a Buddhist and a dad of three. And I was a bit like... <laughs> <laughs> It's like, sell to me a little man. Sell to me here. <laughs> Actually, he is such an honest person. And he's so full of integrity. I love that. That he couldn't play the game. He couldn't play the dating app game. And Actually, that was such... When I met him, I was like, you're so much more handsome than you looked in your profile. And obviously, he was wonderful. And I realized that I'd been... I'd just been looking for the wrong thing for a very, very long time. And dating apps gave me the chance to go on a lot of dates and to work out what the right thing was. Because for ages, I'd been telling myself this story about how true love is fireworks and you know immediately and you run away to Rome together the next day and all that sort of stuff. And actually, for me, true love was safety. It was honesty. It was kindness. It was warmth. It was a slow burning process that I felt really secure in. There was immediate chemistry, but then there was this slow growth. So I feel very like, how did we end up on that dating app on that particular day? Fate. The universe unfolds exactly as it has to, right? Exactly. Because I don't think we would have met otherwise because we work in such different worlds. Hold on, because this is a big one. So the universe unfolds in, you had six breakups, you said at a point in time, six serious relationships. And then you have this entire story and then you end up in the weirdest place to find an amazing man. And he ends up in the weirdest place to find an incredible woman. And somehow out of the 600 gazillion other people out there, you get to meet each other. Explain that. I mean, that's a serious stroke of luck for a mathematician like me. Like seriously, the probability of that is zero. It doesn't happen. And actually one of the reasons why dating apps don't work is not because of the mechanism. It's just because of the sheer numbers. So if you were to find that one needle in a haystack, really, it's impossible almost. Is that the way the universe works? Is that what you believe? That is what I believe. If you were to ask Justin, he would put it a slightly different way. Justin would be mm -hmm. a lot more scientific about it. And he would be a lot mm -hmm. more, well, we've both been married before. We've both got divorced. We both came out of that a bit older, a bit knocked around the edges, a bit clearer about knowing what we wanted. Therefore, our strategies were quite similar. Therefore, our <laughs> minds meant that we would probably download a certain number of apps and get to a certain, and he would work it out that way. But there is still something really beautiful about that because if that's the way that science works, that in itself for me is like a mysterious universal design. I think it's sort of the same thing coming from a different angle in that I do believe in a higher power and Justin doesn't. Justin believes that our higher powers are within us, that, that it's a sort of human thing. And for me, it doesn't matter what you call it. And so... Was I always destined to meet Justin? It's not that I don't believe in free will, because I do. But I believe that having made the succession of choices that I made, 
and the decisions and being with the people I had been with up to that point and all of those incredibly nuanced, infinitesimal choices and decisions led me to this point. It's not that that was preordained. It's that I chose my own adventure, as it were. And I almost feel that's more romantic to have a degree of agency over who you choose to be with. And it is a daily choice when you're in a relationship. And that, the daily choice, for me, is also the essence of love. But love is a mm. verb and not just a noun. Oh my God, I love that. I absolutely love that. I mean, in an interesting way, I actually believe it's both. I believe that there is the free will of the universe, if you want, that overlaps on your free will and both of them together lead to that destiny, right? And in a way, if you had not taken the actions through your own free will, you would have never overlapped on that path, if you want. But if you had taken your actions alone and the universe was not yet willing for it to happen because you had to go through your learnings, you had to go through the other relationships, you had to go through what you had to go through, regardless of how many actions you would take, you wouldn't get there. Which takes me to one of my favorite... By the way, if anyone on this conversation has not bought philosophy yet, what are you doing to your life? Like, seriously, it's an incredible piece of work that summarizes a lot of the things we struggle with. And one of my favorite, of course, being an engineer and being a mathematician is, is that failure is a form of data collection. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, first of all, my favorite failure principle is two, you are not your worst thoughts, which was entirely inspired by you. And as you know, Oh, is that true? Thank you. You are quoted so much in philosophy that it's essentially an act of plagiarism because I'm just like, as no every single page. Hold on. Here is another reason why you guys should go and buy philosophy. So there, there you go. <laughs> go buy soul for happy. I'm sure they've all bought it already. But failure is data acquisition was a principle taught to me by a woman called Deborah Francis White, who is wonderful mm. and also has her own podcast called The Guilty Feminist. And her background is in theatre. And she went on an improv course as a student. And as someone learning the art of improv, she was taught to not only celebrate failure, but sometimes to actively pursue it. Because you needed to know when you got on that stage, what wouldn't work with an audience in order to find out mm. what did finally work? What was the joke that would sustain their attention? And when she said that to me, I found it really mind-blowing because I thought you can apply that to so many different areas of life. A scientist coming up with a cure for a terrible disease, I mean, or working on a vaccine to counteract yeah. the pandemic, would not think if one experiment failed that they themselves were the failure, hopefully. They would think, well, I can eliminate that from my inquiries now and that will bring me close to the totally that does work. And I truly believe that dating is like that too, that every bad mm. date you go on is teaching you something about what you don't want and what you woke yeah. up with. And by extension, it's teaching you something necessary about yourself. And so it will bring you closer to the thing that you do want that is worthy of you. And so that's the premise of that. I love, love, love that concept. And as a matter of fact, I think that a big part of life is about negation. If you're going out shopping and you're not looking for the dress that you want, mostly you're looking for the dresses that you don't want. So you're going through the shelf saying, no, 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 no. And all of that data collection eventually ends up saying, and here is what I want, right? And I think this idea of data collection changes 
everything. Because I saw quite a few people saying, which app, which dating app, maybe I should go on dating apps. I'll tell you openly, I, I went on a dating app once, actually, only once. And and it was an incredible experience because to me, that was the ultimate form of data collection. And I think the idea there is when it's data collection, you cannot be hurt by being rejected. And this is a very important tip for everyone listening. If you want to be on dating app, what you're doing is you're accelerating your ability to date by 200,000 X. And so you're going to send a message to someone. They're not going to respond. Don't consider that they rejected you because by the way, they don't even know you. So they can't reject you when they don't know you. And that idea of going through them quickly is very important. It's mathematical, but also as a data collection mechanism, as a matter of fact, as you accelerate your engagement on anything, dating, jobs, solving a puzzle, playing a video game, as you do that, every mistake is the most valuable thing ever because you say, ah, that shot in the video game didn't work. I'm not going to try that again. I'm going to try another one. And I think that really is where life becomes more prone to success, if you want. I think that's exactly where it goes. Yeah. And when you're playing a computer game and you don't shoot the baddie first time, you don't automatically think, well, I'm never playing a computer game again because I'm such a failure. Like, I'm taking exactly. all computer games. You don't think that. And so it's the same. I got into a mindset when I was going on unsuccessful dates of thinking, oh, maybe I'm just a bit too much. Like, maybe it's just too much. Or... And because I'm a perfectionist, when someone rejected me, I felt that that was a signal of how I was failing to like be perfect for everyone. But if you're perfect for everyone, then you're not really a real person and you're not living the life you should. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're outsourcing your sense of self to other people's perceptions of you. And actually then I realized, no, it's not that I'm too much. It's that they're not enough. Yeah, that's exactly the right way to say it. The right way to say it is, Look, they're not for me. It's as simple as that. And I think every project, everything that you go through life, if it doesn't get to become a firm part of your life, it's because it's not for you. You know, the things that are for you because you're good at them and you enjoy them and so on will always land in the right place, I think. I need to ask you a question. What dating app was it that you went on and what is your current status? Uh, don't do that to me again. So one of the things about you, remember that one time after I spoke at Justin's company and then I, you know, you asked me something and then I blabbered away all of my confusion about uh, relationships. I'm still confused. On social media, I talk about something I call half monk and half monk is a very deep, deep, deep desire within me to spend a big portion of my life in retreat, if you want. And I already have committed a big portion of my life to one billion happy to slow-mo to my writing and so on. And so in a very interesting way, I have insufficient resources to sustain a relationship. And it's quite a challenge. Why am I saying this on my own podcast? It's, <laughs> it's not supposed to sleep. Because you need to put into the universe what you desire, and then it will come to you. I actually think that's the absolute point. I don't actually know. I am between two very strong desires. One is I truly and honestly believe I need a retreat. And I think the lockdown has really, I mean, I'm in mostly involuntary lockdown, even though Dubai here has no lockdown at all. I'm mostly involuntary lockdown because I think our souls need several things. Part of them is love, but love is given in so many ways other than just romantic love. And the other, of course, is you definitely need to visit you. 
I believe you need to spend time, you need to spend years sometimes just with you. And everyone who's ever gone down the path of really finding enlightenment has actually spent time in retreat. Now, I find that it's almost impossible to do that with the commitments I have given to the world. So I'm looking for that half monk idea of like, how much of my life can I dedicate to the mainstream delivering impact and how much of it can I dedicate internally? So where is my status? Uh, I have no idea. Okay. And just one more very quick question, then I'll allow you to get back to asking me things. But do you think you'd ever consider leading a retreat? Of course. Yes. Great. Can I sign up? <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. I mean, I, I did that quite a few times in my life, actually. And it was an incredible experience, to be honest. My retreats are not the typical, let's all stay silent and say, um, they're a lot more active and engaged. But yes, and maybe we should do one online. How about that? Ooh, yes. That's yeah. an idea. We have a me too, please. Okay. Yes. Let, <laughs> let's do that. Can I go to a bit further on the whole idea of what we believe matters? Because I think I heard you again once say, you know, you get into life and people ask you to dance like no one's watching. And, you know, they ask you to do certain things in certain ways. And the reality is we're hyper conditioned, hyper conditioned, including, by the way, love and relationships. So the idea of can I actually choose to be not in a relationship for a while, or can I choose to have a specific model of relationship is actually quite interestingly conditioned into us. Mm. So you, you constantly talk about being conditioned by romantic comedies. Yes. Where's the conditioning in that? Um, first of all, the dance like no one's watching. So that was a bit in philosophy where in the introduction, I write about the positivity movement, which does have incredible things to teach us. I mean, you're a perfect example of someone who has taught millions how we can train our brains to be happier. And it's a very practical thing that has taken 12 years of your life to research and it requires work from the person doing it. I have more of an issue with that sort of, you just need to think positive thoughts and have a nice mood board and like select a Pinterest quote and everything's going to be fine. Like actually you need to do stuff towards it. And dance like nobody's watching is one of those quotes that's become so popular. And actually I'm like, has anyone ever danced like nobody's watching? I find that impossible. And then I feel like a failure that I'm not living up to this like positive mood music. <laughs> I, I can't dance like nobody's watching. I'm sorry. Um, in this world of social media, it does feel like everyone's watching all of the time. Totally. The whole world is watching. Oh, it's exhausting. But in terms of conditioning, I think there's an element of conditioning in that, which is like, another quote is good vibes only. Well, what about when you're feeling down one day? Are you not allowed to exist because it's not a good vibe and that's not permitted? It's about the kind of mm. oppressive weight of what hashtag movements make us all feel. And often yeah. when a movement that is trying to say something quite profound becomes a hashtag, it's when it becomes completely one-dimensional and you're either in or you're out and if you're out you're failing so that's one way that I think we can be socially conditioned in a negative way and the other way the romantic comedy thing I mean I say this in all seriousness although it also comes across as a joke but I grew up on a steady stream of 1980s rom-coms and I'm sure we'll come on to that later though um, <laughs> 
every single one of those rom-coms, I mean, some of them are incredible films, but every single one of them, I actually can't think of an exception from that particular era, ended up with the happy ending being heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. And they would either get married or they would choose to live together. And that was just how I thought life worked. I thought that would happen to me at the appropriate time and I would meet someone in my mid-twenties and then we would settle down and then we'd have two children and we'd live in a house like all of our other friends lived in and it didn't work out like that. And when it didn't work out like that, I was incredibly ashamed because I felt that I'd failed in the eyes of society as well as my own personal failure and feeling like I'd let my family down and all of the other bits of betrayal that I felt. And I felt that, yeah, that I'd failed society and what was expected of me. And I just realised that I hadn't taken the time to work out what life I wanted to live outside yes. preordained metrics. So I was making myself feel like a failure by not taking the time fully to discover who I was and what I wanted. Because if I'd been truly honest with myself, I don't know if I would have wanted to get married when I got married. I don't know. It's such a mind-bending thing to imagine. Absolutely. This truly is the question. The question is how many of our actions are done because we're expected or we're so well-programmed to expect to do them. And really, really, the question is, would you be able to stand up and say, no, this is not for me? Exactly. And it's why I'm so grateful that Our modern era, although I know that there are lots and lots of problems, one of the great things that social media and the internet has done is that it's given platforms to so many different voices. And there are so many incredible non-binary body positive people out there doing wonderful stuff that will enable all of us to live in a future that we have chosen for ourselves rather than one we've inherited. I hope. One of the bad things about social media, though, is that Instagram will kick us out in four minutes. So I want a quick answer to a very important question. If you look at everything that's happening with COVID-19, lockdowns, economies, and all of that, would you consider that all of humanity failed? No, not at all, because I think we've also seen the greatest examples of humanity at work during this pandemic. People on the front line, health Mm. workers who have sacrificed time with their families and their own safety to help others. Those moments of communication between neighbours where we've checked in on our elderly neighbours or we've done grocery shopping for someone who's ill. Those are the moments of greatest humanity. And actually, I think, I hope that the pandemic has taught us an enormous amount about resilience, the power of connection, how we want our lives to be lived going forward. The fact that We might not always want an overly busy diary that doesn't enable us time to think. We might embrace the future of more flexible working, which will help all sorts of marginalised people who can't necessarily get into offices. So I actually think as much as it's been an unbelievably distressing and traumatic time for so many people, we've also seen the best of humanity at play and it's been an opportunity for that. So true. So true. And I actually think going back to how you started the conversation around success is to be the best version of us. I actually always say that success at this time is to be the best version of empathy, the best version of compassion, the best version of standing up, helping out, and really being there for each other. I really think 
if we manage to bring that along, I think life itself will want to support us. And I really think that this is one of the most interesting learnings in this challenging time, if you want. I love you dearly, Elizabeth. I have to announce the answer to the competition about the two romantic comedies, if it's love actually, or what was the other one? Oh, yeah, yeah, When Harry Met Sally. (laughs) So I have to admit to you, I decided not to count because I didn't want either of us to succeed or fail. I think it was just, I love them both. I will say though, I need you to tell me why do you think When Harry Met Sally is the most amazing romantic comedy in the world? Well, it's scripted by Nora Ephron, and I think the dialogue is incredible. I love the soundtrack by Harry Connick Jr. I love Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal in the... Oh, who doesn't? I mean, it's just, for me, the essence of everything. It's Well, in a way, it's about a romance that should never have been, which appeals to my sense of failure, because it's about finding love when mm. you didn't expect it. So that's me. Like, I just love everything about it. It's one of those films I never get tired of. I can watch it again and again. But I do love that you love Love Actually because that's just a favourite <laughs> romantic comedy. And there's something I so told you. pure about your soul that you would love that film that ultimately is quite cringe. But <laughs> <laughs> it is. That you are so pure and that's what I love about you. <laughs> so to answer very quickly, the thing I love about Love Actually is that it's not only romantic love. There are so many types of love in there that are so pivotal to our lives, but are rarely ever spoken about. And I will then say, finding love in the most unexpected places is how I want to close our conversation. Because look at you, loved by thousands, tens of thousands, so in so many different ways. And I will tell you openly, I think you're an amazing example of love, actually. What you do, what you put out in the world, you're one of the closest people to my heart. Elizabeth, I always, always love being with you. Thank you for being here today. You're actually going to make me cry because I don't have words to convey how special you are to me and the profound impact that you've had on my life. And I'm so honoured to be talked to by you, at you. Like, I, just to have this opportunity to answer your incredible questions and, again, to sit at your feet and learn from your extraordinary insight and wisdom. Oh my God. So thank you, Mo, for everything that you do. And please come back to London as soon as humanly possible. Done. That's the plan. I'm on a flight right now. No, I will get there as soon as I can. And I give a big hug to Justin. Tell him he's the luckiest man alive. And we will talk again soon. Thank you all for joining us. This I hope you enjoyed this little angel talking as much as I did. So there you have it. That's why I love Elizabeth so much. The honesty, the vulnerability, the inspiration, the wisdom. I hope you have learned so much from this as much as I did. I hope your hearts have been touched as much as mine always is when I spend time with Elizabeth Day. I'd ask you openly to please spread the word on this episode. Tell as many people as you know. Tell them, go to slow-mo episode 69, season one, because I truly believe this will inspire quite a few people. And yes, find me on social media. As I said, I recorded this on Instagram live and I intend to do quite a few of those going forward. So Find me on Instagram at mo underscore gaudat in case you want to join those conversations live in the future. 
And at the same time, find me elsewhere. I'm Mo Gaudet on LinkedIn, mgaudet on Twitter, mo.gaudet.official or mo.gaudet.personal on Facebook. And I have many of my videos and a lot of my content on youtube.com slash solve for happy. I once again, am so grateful for the alibi, for the opportunity that you give me to speak to such amazing people and record such amazing, inspiring conversations that I hope will change the lives of millions as time goes by. I know you're always busy and it's been tough times for so many of us, but remember, there is always a little bit of time to slow down. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.